Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to do the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. Our context is this. In chapter 7, Paul went into a great deal of detail about marriage. He talked about marriage for Christian couples, both of whom are believers. He talked about mixed marriages where the husband or the wife, either the husband or the wife was an unbeliever. And then he talked about single people and what rules for them, suggestions for them, I should say, really, suggestions, if they are single either because of being widowed, divorced, or because they hadn't gotten married yet. So we move now from that exalted topic of marriage, and we go to chapter 8, talking about food offering to idols, offered to idols, or so-called doubtful things. We're starting in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul says this, about food offered to idols, we know that Quote, we all have knowledge, unquote. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. Paul is answering the letter, the earlier letter that the Corinthians had sent him, and he's answering point by point, and here he says about food. He already said in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, in response to the matter you wrote about, quote, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. So he's answering point by point the points brought up in that previous letter to the Corinthians. And they had offered him something about idle meat. Now, this question of idol meat, you think, well, what's that got to do with me? I'm telling you, doubtful things come up all the time. Things that they're not per se immoral, but if you do them, you feel funny about them. And your conscience starts bothering you, and you say, well, is this right or is this wrong? So idol meat is a great example to deal with because it helps us to apply it to our daily lives in the modern age. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible puts a quote around, we all have knowledge. So Paul says, we know that, quote, we all have knowledge, unquote. And I think that's proper. Because probably what's happened here is that people were saying in Corinth, look, we know that idols aren't real idols, so let's just eat food offered to idols. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. Idols don't exist. We know that they don't exist. We have that knowledge, so let's just eat. And don't let our conscience bother us. But then Paul says, knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. And of course, what he's referring to is the fact that yeah, you've got knowledge, all right, but there's some people there in Corinth that don't have knowledge that idle, that eating idle meats is eating idle, e- eating meat to nothing. They have their consciences are weak, and you're not building them up, building them up with love when you exercise your knowledge and you cause them to stumble. So that's the what this chapter is going to be about. Now, here's what the problem is about food offered to idols, uh, and this gets to be a little bit hairy here because there's so many options about that meat, where, where that meat could end up. First of all, it could be eaten by the priest of the idol. Well, that's not going to be a problem. But then the food that's left over that the priest doesn't eat could be eaten by the offeror. This is just like in the Hebrew sacrifices. The priest ate a piece. I think it was the peace offering, and the, the offeror ate some of it too in the temple precincts. Well, likewise, the idols did the same thing. The meat that's left over, they ate at a feast in the temple, in an idol temple. And Christians could have been invited to these feasts. So now they've got a problem. Do I eat the idol meat at the feast in the temple, even though I'm not worshiping the idol? I'm just being invited here by a friend. Or another thing might could have happened. The leftover idol meat could have been taken home to the idolater's house, and then the idolater has a Christian friend. He says, come on over here and eat with me. And now you sit down and you eat that meat, and the Christian friend knows that the meat was eaten at an idol, possibly knows that the, the meat was offered to an idol. There's another third option, another thing that could have happened. The idol meat that's left over from a sacrifice could have been sold to a public meat market. And then the pagan friend goes to the meat market and buys the meat 
And you don't know whether it's meat offered to an idol or not offered to an idol. There's just no way of knowing. So, some Christians might have felt if they ate such meat, they would be worshiping idols, even though they didn't know that the food, that the meat was offered to idols. Now, Paul is going to divide the Corinthians up into two categories here, strong and weak. A strong Christian is one who has knowledge. He knows that idols aren't anything. He knows that he can eat at at home at a, at a pagan friend's house for sure. He can eat idol meat, and that would not be considered worshiping an idol because idols don't exist. He might even be so strong that he thinks that he can eat idol meat in an idol temple feast. He says, well, yeah, everybody here is pagan and they're worshiping an idol, but I'm not because I know that that meat was not offered to an idol because idols don't exist. That's real strong. stronger than me. I wouldn't do it. But some Christians might be able to do that. There's another option, possibility, too. A, a Christian might not be over at a friend's house, but he himself could go to the meat market, and when he buys the meat, it could be meat offered to an idol. And so he says, ooh, I, may, I might not better eat this meat. I could be offering eating meat offered to an idol. Well, if you think about that, if you're so weak in your conscience that you're going to do that, you might as well be a vegetarian because then you could never buy any meat at all. So there's all kinds of permutations and combinations of situations here. So how do we straighten it all up? Before we look into it any further, let's point out something interesting. This very issue had already been considered at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. That was in the late 40s, if I remember correctly. A long time before this, this is... The Corinthian letter was written in the 50s. So this has already been decided. Let me read this to you. Verses 28, 29, Acts 15. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. This is burdens on the Gentiles. That you abstain from food offered to idols. And some other provisions also, but the one that's relevant here. That you abstain from food offered to idols. Not because there was anything wrong in eating food offered to idols. Because it was good to cause people to stumble. Well, it seems to me, and John Gill points that out, uh, discusses this issue, it seems that the Corinthian church should already know what was decided at the Jerusalem Council. You're not supposed to eat food offered to idols that might cause somebody to stumble. John Gill says, well, the Corinthian church must not have heard of the decree. I don't believe that. How could they not have heard of it? Paul was at the Jerusalem Council, and Paul's dealing with the Corinthians in several letters. I'm, come on, they heard of it. Paul started their church even. You, you mean to tell me they wouldn't have heard of the Jerusalem Council? In my opinion, I think it's more likely that they knew of the decree and just ignored it. Given the lousy spiritual condition of the church, I wouldn't doubt it. Or perhaps they interpreted the decree as to mean this. Don't eat food knowingly offered to idols. So in other words, well, we're not going to go in and participate in an idol worship ceremony. And, the, and we're not going to participate in the idol feast afterwards, but hey, if we go to a friend's house and eat meat, it might have been soft, offered to idols, but we don't know it is, and therefore we're not violating the Jerusalem decree, because the Jerusalem decree says it means abstain from food knowingly offered to idols, even though it doesn't say that, that's what they meant. And so therefore, if we're eating food at home, we could argue that we don't, first of all, we don't know it's offered to idols, and second of all, even if it was offered to idols, it's not being offered to idols now, we're sitting around here eating a private meal. And I think that's perfectly reasonable, I would think that way. I would I would be in the strong Christian camp, I don't think I would go into the idol feast itself and eat the meat now, because I think that does violate this, the Corinthian, the Jerusalem decree, which said abstain from food offered to idols. If you go into an idol feast and you know that you're eating meat, that you know is being right now offered to idols, I think you're participating in idol worship. 
I'm not that strong, but I am strong enough to say I could eat it at home or buy meat from the meat market not knowing and eat it. All right, so when Paul says knowledge inflates with pride, what kind of knowledge? Knowledge that eating knowledge that idols were nothing and eating meat formerly sacrificed to idols was not idol worship. That's the knowledge. And it's true knowledge. It's not, it's not false. It's true. However, as John Gill points out, quote, a mere show of knowledge, knowledge in conceit, mere notional and speculative knowledge, that which is destitute of charity or love, unquote, is worthless. Now, it seems to me that the Corinthians, when they write this letter, are leaning to the opinion that we can eat idol meat in any circumstance because idols don't exist. Even if you're eating meat at the feast itself, either after the offering of the sacrifice or whatever, or if you take the idol meat home and eat it in a private house, it doesn't matter. Idols don't exist. We can eat. Adam Clark says this knowledge, whatever it was, this knowledge boasted of by the Corinthians led them to contemn contemn others. In other words, they were looking down on their weak brothers who, whose consciences were full of scruples about eating idol meat. Now, Paul is quoting a letter again, the letter, as I said, we know that, quote, we all have knowledge. Well, who is the all? Well, whoever it is, we have to reconcile verse 1 with verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 8. Here's what verse 7 says. However, not everyone has this knowledge. But verse 1 says, we all have knowledge. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, I'll reconcile it very easily because I think Paul is quoting the Corinthian letter. We all have knowledge, and Paul's disagreeing with the quotation. He's saying, no, we don't all have knowledge. There's some weak brothers who've been worshiping idols for so long that they don't have that knowledge that you strong brothers have got yet. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says you recon reconcile it this way. Generally speaking, all have knowledge theoretically. In general, yeah, theoretically, we should all know we, that idols don't exist. But practically speaking, there were some weak questions who didn't have the knowledge. I don't think that's the best way to state it. I'm not exactly sure he might be agreeing. Jameson Fawcett and Brown might be agreeing with me here. But I think the best way to say is this is a quotation that all have knowledge. And no, you don't. Paul is saying, no, not everybody does have knowledge. Verses 2 through 3. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So if anyone who thinks he knows anything, in other words, idols don't exist, eating idol meat is okay, there's one thing you don't know. You don't know as you ought to know. First of all, compared to God, you don't know a ding-dong-darn thing compared to God. You don't know with the full comprehensiveness that God knows. And second thing you don't know is that knowledge ought not to be at the expense of one's brother, as John Gill points out. So that's why your knowledge is deficient. It's deficient in its scope and it's deficient in its love. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And now Paul says, we want to talk about knowledge. Well, let me tell you, God knows you and knows your heart. And he knows what you think about your Christian brothers. Paul is implying strongly that love towards God is much more important than intellectual knowledge. Now, when Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Of course, he's assuming that these Corinthians love God and, and that therefore God knows them and he knows their hearts. So maybe you better be careful about condemning your weak brother. But... Paul could be saying this, if anyone loves God, not directly, but loves God by loving his brother, as John Gill points out. If anyone loves God by loving his brother, well, then God knows him in a good sense. He's close to him. He's intimately close to this Corinthian who would love God by loving his brother by refraining from eating meat if it would cause him to stumble. We go to verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8. About eating food offered to idols, then, we know that, quotation mark, an idol is nothing in the world, unquote, end quote. 
and that, quote, there is no God but one, close quote. Now, I think this is the best way to interpret this. Of course, the punctuation marks are not in the original Greek. The Holman Christian Study Bible makes a translator's choice and puts the quotation marks in there, and I think it makes perfect sense that these strong Christians in Corinth were saying, look, idols aren't anything. There's only one God, so if there's only one God, then obviously there's not an idol. Therefore, let's eat, drink, and be married in the idol feast. Let's read some Old Testament scriptures about how idols are nothing. Psalm 115, 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats, which is a very poetic way of saying idols ain't nothing. Psalms 135, verses 15 through 17. The idols of the nations are of silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Indeed, there is no breath in their mouths. Isaiah 44, 12 through 20. The iron worker labors over the cold, shapes the idol with hammers, and works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human likeness, like a beautiful person, to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use. Or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships it and worships. He prays to it. Save me for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. No one reflects, no one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire, I also baked half of it, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and ate, I will make something detestable with the rest of it, and I will bow down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, his deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? Oh, that's a really prophetic way of denouncing idolatry, I think. Now, this knowledge that there's no such thing as an idol, there needs to be a caveat here because there are demons behind those idols. Scripture proves that, 1 Corinthians 10:20. No, Paul says, but I do say that what they sacrifice, the idolaters, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. And that's why I'm telling you, if you have meat, it's, you're eating meat in an idol feast while the worship service is going on. You are eating meat that's sacrificed to demons. So I don't see how anybody could say that's all right. I think the problem arose was after the idol feast was over. People were eating in the feast that happened after the sacrifice was going on or eating at a pagan friend's house or eating at your own house after buying meat from the meat market at which idol meat may have been present. Interestingly enough, the Jews had a, a rule. The rabbi said that you could eat that meat, but as soon as the food was offered, it was prohibited. But if the food was just brought into the pagan temple and hadn't been offered yet, you could eat it. So the idea of offering to the idol, is that's the key that sets off the prohibition against 
participating in idol worship, according to the Jews, who are, of course, very fine and precise about such things. We go to verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8. For even if they are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, now when he says, if even if they are gods, he means so-called gods, fake gods, if you will, like the Greek gods, Zeus and Hades and Hephaestus and Hestia and Aphrodite and Athena and all those gods. They're so-called, whether in heaven or earth. The Zeus would be in heaven, on earth would be, well, under the earth would be Hades. On earth would be Poseidon, I guess. As there are many gods and many lords, and they are, there's a ton of them back then in the Greek world and the Roman world. So Paul acknowledges that they are conceptual entities that are worshipped as gods. They're gods, but they're so-called. And the NIV Study Bible says that he was referring to the alleged gods of Greek and Roman mythology. I've just listened, I've been listening to a podcast on mythology, and I'm telling you, those gods were the nastiest SOBs you have ever come across. It's because they were based on human nature. You want to understand and feel the doctrine of original sin? Listen to Greek mythology. Zeus must have had 50 illegitimate kids. He's raping people all over the place. That's their chief god, a rapist. Sounds like a certain president I know. Now, these gods, whether in heaven or on earth, could, I said Zeus was in heaven. Actually, he was on Mount Olympus, but he was up there in the sky. And there was Uranus, the earlier generation of gods. He was a sky god. But also, it could be the sun and the moon, the stars. They were all worshipped as gods at some point. Even the Jews had many gods. Jeremiah 2.28. But where are your gods you made for yourself? Let them rise up and save you in your time of disaster if they can. For your gods are as numerous as your cities, Judah. So this is Jeremiah pointing out that the Jews participated in all this pagan idolatry. Now, all of this, of course, contradicts the clear scripture in Deuteronomy 6, 4, 4, which says this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord our God is one God. Moving on to verse 6, 1 Corinthians 8, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, Paul continues. The heathens have their so-called gods, many of them, but we have one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, all things are through him, and we exist through him. When you say through him, that means via him or through the agency of him. That means we wouldn't exist except for the agency of Jesus creating us. Jesus is the creator. That him there probably refers to the immediate preceding reference, Jesus Christ. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him. So Jesus brought everything into existence. We exist through him. No junior God there, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, prepositions are interesting. All things are from him, and we exist for him, and through him, those prepositions. And the way prepositions to me are always kind of hard to describe. To me, a preposition, well, grammatically, a preposition connects the subject of a prepositional phrase with the object. So we are through him, so we are connected through God in a certain way. We are for him, that means we are connected to God in a certain way. We do things for him and so forth. So whenever you see these prepositional phrases, it shows, and God is the object of the preposition, and we're the subject, that means that we are intimately tied to God in some way. Now, those prepositions a lot of times are spatial, from, away, away from, close to, things like that. But they also express other things, but they always express a relationship between us and God. So that's the best way to look at that. So if all things are from him, well, that's obvious. Everything that was in existence came from God, God the Father. And we exist for him. We 
subject of preposition, for, preposition, him, object of preposition. So how are we related to him? We are for him. That means for the purpose of serving him. Let's read another scripture that sounds just like what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 8. Hebrews 2.10, For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. All things exist for him, for the purpose of giving him glory, and through him they would not have come into existence except for God. Romans 11.36, Paul says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now there's a string of prepositions. For from him, that means... I think that Paul is referring to Jesus here. For from him, all things come from Jesus. And through him, all things came into existence because of, by the agency of Jesus. And to him, all things that are created return back to him, return glory back to him. All things. Here's how John Gill puts it. All created beings and things. Talking about the all things, what are all things? All, they're Quote, all created beings and things, angels are of him, are created by him, serve and worship him. Devils are of him and under him and at his control, though they have rebelled against him. All mankind are of him and are his offspring. The whole universe, the heavens, the earth and seas and all that is in them are of him. All things in nature, providence, grace and glory come of him. He is the author of every mercy, temporal and spiritual. Unquote. Close quote. Let's look at that phrase, all things are from him, Acts 4.24. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in him. All things are from him. He created all things. That's expressed in Acts 4. John 1.3, all things were created through him. This is Jesus. All things were created through Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has not been created. So Jesus created everything. All things are from him. Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him. This is Jesus, Paul's talking about, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator God. Jesus is the creator God, and God the Father is the creator God. All things come from him. 1 Corinthians 8.7, however, not everyone has this knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge that idols have no real existence. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they ate food offered to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, here we're talking about weak Christians. And he's talking about Christians, now not heathen. Heathen could care less. They'll eat idol meat. They won't be have their conscience defiled. But a converted idolater who's just been converted, who doesn't understand things, he's been so used to offering meat to idols, it would be a natural thing if he would stumble at this. And remember, it was the Jerusalem Council that forbade forbade eating idol food just for the purpose of weak Christians. And Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians, hey, some of you guys don't have this knowledge that idols are no big deal, that they don't exist. Paul dealt with a similar question in Romans 14. In Romans 14, 14, he says this, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That's the knowledge. He says, I know, I've got knowledge. Nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. And that's the person you will make stumble if you eat your idol meat. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. So what he's saying is here, give it up, guys. If you eat, don't eat your idol food. That's not going to make you less acceptable to God. And if your weak brother is not eating idol meat, that doesn't make him any way inferior to you. And you are not better if you do eat idol meat because you have knowledge that idols don't exist. 
It doesn't matter. It's a doubtful thing, the adiophora. It's one of the adiophora, the doubtful things. Now, when Paul says that food is not of importance, food will not make us acceptable to God, so it's not important. However, I do think we need to make a careful exception here. Paul is speaking in general, but if you're eating meat in an idol's temple, at an idol feast, then food does make you inferior if you eat that food. I don't think Paul's talking about that, but it, it would. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 8, 10, For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, on his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols. Now Paul is talking about making your brother stumble. He doesn't address the issue of whether if there were no weak brothers around, would that be defiling to someone to eat and sacrifice something eaten to an idol? Well, he doesn't say, in my opinion, I don't think he meant that. I don't think he meant for us to eat food at idol temples. However, with that one exception, he would he would be saying that it's perfectly okay to eat food at a pagan brother's house if there were no weak Christians present that could stumble, or eating food bought brought from bought from a meat market where idle meat might be present. That would not make that would be okay, except if there's a weak brother present that you would make stumble, you shouldn't do it. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. But be careful that this right of yours, what right? The right to eat meat offered to idols. Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And again, that's going to happen. You eat food in a public idol feast, people are going to see you. That's going to cause people to stumble, even if your conscience is able to stand it. Stand it. As the NIV Study Bible says, pagan friends probably invited Christian friends to eat at the feast in the idol temples. 1 Corinthians 8, 11-13. Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Your knowledge that it's okay to eat meat. And you eat meat. Idle meat. Knowing that your weak brother is going to think that you are sinning before Christ to do that. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, and notice Paul calls it a sin... You are sinning against Christ. Why? Because you, Christ is intimately joined to his body. Those weak brothers are Christ's body. They belong to Jesus. So you sin against those brothers and wound their conscience. You're sinning against Jesus Christ, your Lord. That's serious business. Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to fail, I will never again eat meat, so that I won't cause my brother to fail. The NIV Study Bible makes an interesting point here. If you wound a weak brother's conscience by eating meat one time it's easier for him to get wounded the second time and then the third time or i should say it's easier for you to do it again you do it once you could do it again the second time you eat meat again the third time you get used to it and the brother's sitting there in silence and his conscience gets hurt again and again and again so just stop it at the beginning don't do it now the christian brother is said to be ruined by you eating meat now, this, this does not mean that the person is going to hell, as John Gill says. You can do a lot of damage to a Christian brother in this life. You can screw him up and ruin his life. However, my Armenian commentator, the learned Dr. Clark or Mr. Clark, Adam Clark, says this, quote, So we learn that a man may perish for whom Christ died. I mean, going to hell. We learn that a man may perish for whom Christ died. This admits of no quibble. Well, I would quibble with that. I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. John Gill would quibble with that. This admits of no quibble. If a man for whom Christ died, apostatizing from Christianity, for he is called a brother, though weak, 
return again to and die in idolatry, can I go to heaven that a man for whom Christ died may perish everlastingly? Oh, really? The man for whom Christ died? Christ dies and his atonement fails and the person ends up in hell? Christ died for him paying for his sins and then the man goes to hell and pays for his sins twice? Is that just? Oh, I love these limited atonement arguments because I believe in limited atonement because general atonement, saying that Christ died for people to go to hell doesn't make any sense. Why would Christ die for people to go to hell and they go to hell? That means his atonement failed. God doesn't sponsor flops. Jesus ain't no failure. So this ruin here means you're going to make him feel condemned and bad and so forth. Nothing worse than walk around with guilt and condemnation. Romans 8, 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ. How often do we have to repeat that verse to ourselves and to others? Now, I already mentioned this. I'll mention this again. When you sin against your weak brother, you sin against Christ because Christ and his members are one. Those weak brothers in Christ are one. Christ is the head. The weak brothers are the body. Here's some scriptures backing that up. Matthew 25:40. And the king will answer them. This is in a parable. The king will answer them. I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That's when you gave food, to, uh, water to those who were thirsty. If you give water to a thirsty disciple, you did it. You gave it to Jesus because the disciples and Jesus are one. Acts 9, 4, this is Paul. Fall into the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting Christians. And Jesus said, you persecute my Christians, you persecute me. And Corinthians, Paul says, you make your brother stumble. You're sinning against me. You're not only sinning against your Corinthian brothers, you're sinning against me. And ladies and gentlemen, that's very serious. I hope you can make your own application for this. You know, movies, what music you listen to. There's a million, what sports you watch. I don't know. You can go on and on. We have to make our own applications, but the principle's very clear. If you know something's right per se in itself, don't use your right if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. Oh, let me make another point here. This is talking about the brothers who know you and can see you. I'm not trying to please everybody in, in the Christian world. I mean, am I supposed to please every Hindu who thinks it's wrong for me to eat a cow? And I can't eat a steak over here because some Hindu Christians think it's wrong to eat a steak? I don't think so. Bob Jones University, they got so many things that you can't do and can't do. That, that's about a three-hour drive from where I am. But that's far enough because I'm not going to try to please all their scruples I, you know I, now if i'm with them if i'm worshiping with them or praying with them or working with them i will not do something that will cause them to get upset but now the people who judge whether i am to exercise my knowledge or not the people that i know my friends my fellow christians people in my church since recording the first part of this audio, I've read a very good article by robert l Plummer in the southern baptist journal of theology fall of 02 He's a professor there at the seminary. He wrote an article called Eating Idol Meat in Corinth, Enduring Principles from Paul's Instructions. And he made some points that I hadn't noticed before. First of all, that if you ate meat from an idol market, the odds were very, very high that it had to be sacrificed to idols because all the meat markets back then were tied up with temples. And they made their deals that way. They said, provide us with your meat. And so... It was not a 50-50 chance. It was pretty high probability that if you got meat from a meat market, you could be eating idle meat. Also, another point that he pointed out that I had not known before was that many idle temple buildings were used for civic functions. You could go have a family meal there, a family reunion or something like that, that you were not actually sacrificing meat to an idol. You were just using the building. 
and but that was still problematical because oftentimes it was described as quote eating at the table of Apollo or eating at the table of whatever god you were at even though you weren't actually having a a pagan sacrifice there and this article finally concluded like I did that it was that Paul was not talking about it being a doubtful thing to eat meat at an idol festival if you're going there then you're sacrificing as in 1 Corinthians 10 you are sacrificing to demons and drinking the cup of demons. You can't supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. Now, this article also said that because it was so closely associated with idol worship that you shouldn't eat a non-religious meal at a pagan temple. And I would have questions with that. I don't see anything wrong with that if you're not actually participating in the in the idol meal, assuming there's nobody going to stumble if you do so. But he disagreed with that. He, he uh, Dr. Plummer finally came up with two situations in which it that Paul was really talking about which is you buy food from the meat market yourself and eat it at home and you have a weak Christian with you or you go to a pagan friend's house who has served meat bought at a meat market and you eat it there those last two situations are the situations in which Dr. Plummer says that you can't make a brother stumble but it, it would be morally unacceptable to go to a pagan temple in any other circumstance and I would disagree with that but again, these things are always very, very difficult. Ultimately, one has to decide if you're going to cause your brother to stumble or not. That's between you and God and you and that weak brother. And you have to work it out. It's hard to come up with a set of hard and fast rules. Now, one other point I'd like to make is is that sometimes weak Christians can be tyrants over the church. I don't like that kind of music. I only want organ music. If you don't stop organ playing organ music, you're going to make me stumble. And that sort of thing, and pretty soon you got childish, legalistic, baby, immature Christians completely wrecking the worship and the functioning of the church. Well, Paul has something to say about that. That's a that is a weak Christian who should be admonished. He says that in First Corinthians 10, verse 29b through 30. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And so you see, weak Christians have a responsibility to strong Christians too. It all has to be worked out in the context of a church. And ultimately, if you have a problem that needs to be decided with consensual church government, everybody in the church makes a decision whether you're going to do it or not. And that way everybody participates. And if you lose in that discussion, then you bend to the consensus and everybody will live happily ever after. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with 1 Corinthians 8. We'll start next audio on chapter 9. And in chapter 9, Paul will take up the practical but vexing problem of church finance or ministry finance. See you next time, I hope, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.